relevant, and fun. Each episode, we'll discuss one classic book and share some recommendations for more contemporary reads that feature similar themes. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Hi, Chelsea. Hey, Sarah. How you doing? I'm great. I am so excited to talk about The Awakening today. Me too. So I have a question to get us kicked off here. Okay. So Virginia Woolf calls it a room of one's own. In The Awakening, Edna Pantelier sets up a whole new house separate from her family. So where is your favorite place to go for solitude, reflection, creativity, where you're just by yourself? Oh, that's such a good question. I love that part of the book. I have a spare bedroom of my house dedicated to my books. Um, I'm actually sitting in it right now as we chat. I have not built-in bookshelves, but wall-mounted bookshelves, kind of floor to ceiling along one wall that I've filled with all of my tomes. And I love being in this room for reading, podcast recording, blog writing, even sometimes grading if I'm feeling uninspired, because just being amongst all of my books makes me feel happy and safe and inspired. How about you? I love that, that your books are your safe place. (laughs) (laughs) They are. (laughs) I actually tend to need to leave the house when I really, truly need that solitary reflection time. I'm a big nature gal. So either I'll go for a hike or just sit out on the deck. But in order for me to feel like, I'll start over that. In order for me to truly feel at peace and feel solitude, I need to be somehow in nature. Well, I love that we as two readers and creatives have a self-knowledge to know where we can go to be inspired and to feel like ourselves. And that's really what this whole book, The Awakening, is about, a woman coming into herself. So I think we should give our listeners a little bit of a summary for those people who haven't read The Awakening or haven't read it in a while, and then we'll really dive into this book. I think that's a fabulous idea. So before I give a summary, just a quick note about spoilers. They're somewhat unavoidable here at Novel Pairings, but we promise to only spoil content that will enhance your reading experience, or that's fairly common knowledge. For example, Romeo and Juliet both die at the end of the play. If that's a spoiler for you, we cannot take responsibility for that. (laughs) (laughs) So in Kate Chopin's The Awakening, Edna Pontillier, a 28-year-old wife and mother of two boys, experiences an emotional and sexual awakening beginning during a summer vacation on Grand Isle, Louisiana. Through her time spent with the handsome Robert Lebrun, her budding friendships with the local women, and her immersion in the natural beauty of the island, Edna begins to chafe against the expectations her husband and society have placed on her. When the Pontilliers return to New Orleans in the fall, Edna refuses to go back to her old ways of being. She takes up painting, rents a place of her own, and begins an affair with the seductive Alcée Arabam. 
Although Robert eventually returns from his own travels and declares his love for Edna, they know they have no future together. Realizing that even a relationship with the man she loves will not satisfy her desire for a fulfilling life, Edna returns to Grand Isle and drowns herself in the sea. The Awakening is a novella by the prolific American author Kate Chopin, and it was published in 1899. Before we really get into this one, what do you think are the most important things to know about the author, Chelsea? Well, you said it. She's prolific. So in addition to this famous novella, Kate Chopin has many famous short stories that follow similar themes. And so she was widely published with her short stories along with The Awakening, but this is one of her best-known works. She originally titled the book A Solitary Soul, but the publishers changed it to The Awakening, and I find that fact so interesting. Me too. I think it would be a completely different reading experience with that title. As I was reading, because I was reminded of that fact, I did a little bit of background research before even opening up the book. As I was reading, I sort of circled every time I found awaken or awakening. And then I was also noting whenever I found something about solitude, and it's pretty much 50-50 that those words pop up and those concepts pop up with each other. Oh, that's fascinating. I love that you kept track of that. (laughs) That's Yeah, it's very nerdy. (laughs) But But I can see why she would title it A Solitary Soul, but I think it gives the book a completely new theme and meaning. I think that A Solitary Soul is more descriptive of Edna's existence as a character, but The Awakening kind of gives her more agency. There's more action in that term, which changes the tone of the book for me. I can totally see why a publisher, why someone who is trying to sell it would change the title. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. I can't see myself coming across a solitary soul and feeling the need to purchase it. (laughs) No, but The Awakening sounds exciting. Although it's important to note that when the book was first published, it just tanked. People did not want to pick this book up. And I think it was banned quite a bit just because of the sexual content. And it was quite shocking for the time. So she barely earned the modern equivalent of $3,000 in royalties. Which is so crazy. Yes, I think that your point about it being banned was huge. A lot of critics called this book either immoral or amoral and just suggested that Kate Chopin was kind of irresponsible in her writing of this book. They also dismissed it by calling it much too French of a novel. (laughs) That's hilarious. Even though this book totally tanked when it was initially published, it's now very much undeniably considered a classic. It really reemerged in the 1960s, beginning with Betty Friedan's feminine mystique and that sort of suburban white feminism that was becoming more prevalent. And I can totally see why. I mean, Edna is very much an example of the sort of strained and oppressed housewife that Friedan really wrote about. Yeah, you could take The Awakening, change nothing about it except for the setting and set it in the 1950s and you'd see very little difference in the book. That's such a good point. And We said that it's now considered an undeniable classic. Chelsea, did you read this one in school or what was your first experience with The Awakening? I did. I read it in high school for AP literature, I want to say. 
So not until probably senior year. And I remember that this was the first time that we ever analyzed a novel through the feminist lens. That was very exciting. It is a perfect book for that. I don't think you can read this book and not use a feminist lens. Or if you do, you're probably doing something wrong. Yeah, I have a really hard time imagining how that would go down. (laughs) (laughs) I remember being excited to read it and being excited to discuss it and really enjoying it. But I think upon this second read, (laughs) I can see that a lot of that just had to do with my excitement of finally reading a book by a woman author and actually digging into what that meant and what that meant in society for her to be a woman writing about women. When did you first read it? I'm pretty sure I first read it in high school as well. I wasn't quite sure I was right about that because my high school was pretty conservative. And when I was picking this book back up, I was thinking, "Uh, I don't know if my high school would have led us or encouraged us to read this. But as I was rereading it for our chat, I definitely read it in high school. I remember some conversations about it. And I also remember that in college, I had an advisor who encouraged me to include The Awakening in my undergrad thesis paper. And I just didn't want to because I assumed that anything I read in high school was something I didn't want to revisit. (laughs) Yep. And then I read it for our podcast and I'm thinking, yes, this would have been the perfect book for my undergrad (laughs) thesis. (laughs) I really made life harder on myself. It just cracks me up that we now have a podcast where we're going to read a lot of the books that we read in high school. (laughs) Yes, we were too good for them then, but here we are now. (laughs) Okay, let's dig into this. So we talked a little bit about how The Awakening was published in 1899, but it really reemerged later in the 1960s. But let's just tackle how... How do you think The Awakening is commenting on gender norms and social conventions of the time in which it was written and in which it was set? So I think the main thing that stood out to me is what it's saying about the expectations on women to be wives and mothers and how within that predestined box, there isn't a lot of room for women to be creative or intellectual. Yeah, there is definitely an exploration of the relationship between wifehood and motherhood and womanhood, and they're all really seen as the same throughout the book. I also think that there's so much about the stereotype of women being more passionate and emotional than men, and the characters play into those stereotypes. They're not really going against them at all. So we have characters like Edna and some of her friends who are emotional and are either really exuberantly loving their children or, in Edna's case, following this passionate love affair without thinking of the consequences. But then we see these men, like Edna's husband, who only thinks of business, is very matter-of-fact, doesn't really fly into a jealous rage, but they're just very straight-laced and very buttoned-up, business-like. And that contrast, I think, is really interesting. And I don't know, I'm still thinking about what Kate Chopin was trying to say with that. Yeah, that's a really good question, because while much of this book does feel progressive and like it's taking on gender norms, she does seem to 
fall into many of the same ideologies that she's professing to tackle. So I think your example of the men being so business-minded and matter-of-fact is such a good example. When Edna decides that she's going to rent a place of her own, her husband is very concerned about this, not because he thinks his wife might be using this extra apartment to have an affair. He's not worried about scandal. He's worried that people will think that he's losing money and that his business isn't thriving. So he spends a fortune redecorating their large house as if it's an excuse for his wife to move into the smaller house. I love that Edna reads this in the newspaper and she's like, hmm, I see exactly what he's doing here. Kind of smart. And she just moves on. (laughs) There's also this really significant exploration of women and work. So we do see the men go off to work, have their businesses, have these things outside of the home. And then Edna really wants to be an artist and a painter. And because she's a wife and a mother, she's not able to pursue that as anything more than a hobby. Yeah, absolutely. She has this creative soul or at least a desire to to have that creative spirit, but she does want it to be financially sustaining as well. She's not satisfied with it just being a hobby. And she makes a little bit of money off her paintings and she really strives to support herself in this smaller home that she's moved into and not be financially dependent on her husband, which is really, I think, admirable in many ways. I agree. And Edna seems to be drifting between the middle of these two polar opposite characters. So Her best friends in the novel, one of them is Adele, and Adele is this curvy, angelic, motherly, perfect wife, perfect mom, idealistic woman figure. Like, she just glows in her pregnancy, right? Yes. And then we have Madame Reese, and she's a spinster, and she lives in this tiny little apartment on her own. She's a really talented piano player, and she has really as much freedom as a woman could have at the time. And Edna's really drawn between both of these characters for different reasons. And I think it so represents the struggle of the sides of herself. Oh, I completely agree. I think we even see Adele at one point scolding Edna for ignoring her and not coming to visit her enough anymore. And it's in large part because she's been spending so much time with Madame Reese. And I think that says a lot about what's going on with Edna internally. She's getting much more in touch with that side of herself, who is the artist, the creator, the woman who strives for independence. And she's losing touch with her motherly, wifely self. Although she does tell us in like the very first pages of the novel that she's not what she calls a quote, mother woman, hyphenated, which I love that term. And I love she that she tells us that right away. It is fascinating that that's just there at the outset, so we don't get to have any misperceptions about who Edna is and what she wants. We see some really tender moments between her and her children, but then she kind of quickly snaps out of it. Yeah, she talks a lot about the way she loves her children, which is in a very complicated way. Like when she's away from them, she sometimes misses them passionately, and other times she doesn't think about them at all. And I think she does love them a great deal, but she's not willing to make certain sacrifices for them, which she's very upfront about. But it's not the kind of motherly love that I think 
even modern readers would be particularly comfortable with. Probably not. It's very much the Downton Abbey, here are the children for tea time, give them a kiss and then take them away to the nursery. <laughs> that kind yes. of environment. <laughs> I kept thinking about that as well. Which she could have had that kind of life, I think, in, in Europe, but American mothers, even at this time, were expected to be more present in their children's lives. Yes, it was really a time where they were moving into the cult of domesticity. The ideal moral woman is the sort of like moral and important figure of the house. And that was spread throughout literature. I don't, I can't say that I love Edna as a mother because she's not a good mother. But I love that this book exists as a depiction of motherhood. One of my favorite quotes in the book, and I think it must be Kate Chopin's favorite because she really brings it up twice. She says, and this is the repetition of this idea at the very end of the book, she understood now clearly what she had meant long ago when she said to Adele Retignol that she would give up the unessential, but she would never sacrifice herself for her children. And when she first says that to Adele, she tells Adele, well, I would die for my children, but I wouldn't give up myself. And I think that's so fascinating and such a beautiful idea that she would give her children literally anything, but she won't change who she is. There's a specific moment in the book where it says that Edna is reading Emerson. Oh, yes. And so Emerson was real big on the soul and the self and what that even means. And I think that there's, I, I don't think it's outrageous to say that Kate Chopin was exploring this in her own way. It's just through a completely different female perspective because Emerson and, you know, all of his bro buddies, writers, <laughs> basically the idea was that the self is something for men. But Kate Chopin is really arguing here that women get to have a self and an identity too that they get to explore and that they get to have. Yeah, absolutely. She's thinking about what self-reliance means for women. And there's some overlap. She wants to be financially self-reliant. But yes, she is thinking about who she is in a way that women were not even discouraged from. It just people didn't think it was possible for women to have those sorts of existential questions. Yeah, it was really an idea that, oh, well, of course women are fulfilled by being in the home. What more could they hope for than being mothers? Right, exactly. Even Adele seems to kind of embody that. She has, according to the book, she has a child every two years. And it does seem like when she's starting to feel a little listless or restless, she knows it's time to have another baby. Edna does not see that as the right choice for her. <laughs> so true. <laughs> I think one part that's interesting with Edna's self-exploration is the way her husband and the people around her perceive it compared to how she perceives it. And Mr. Pontillier, he's thinking that his wife was maybe growing a little unbalanced mentally. He could see plainly that she was not herself. That is, he could, he could not see that she was becoming herself and daily casting aside that fictitious self, which we assume like a garment. And I love that quote with all of the repetition of the word self and who he thinks herself is 
is completely different than who she thinks she is. And I think it's so true that all people, but probably women under these constraints in particular, had fictitious selves that they felt they had to wear for the world. Yeah, and of course the only time that they could be their real true selves would be when they were alone. Because if they were in the company of anyone, if they were in the company of their children, they had to play the mother role. If they were in the company of their husband, they had to play the wife role. If they're in the company of society, they have to put on the perfect constraints and corsets of all the dressings of society norms and politeness. So of course, in order to completely be herself, a woman would have to be by herself. What did you think about her marriage and her relationship with Mr. Pontillier? Hmm. That's a good question because I I think it's really clear that we're not we're obviously not supposed to have any kind of emotional attachment to their relationship. I I feel nothing when she starts to have an affair. It's not like I feel any kind <laughs> of way. I don't feel bad for Mr. Pontillier. I don't I I don't know. I just felt very little for them together. And I think that's probably the way it's supposed to be. I think so. I think that's probably what reviewers meant when they described the book as amoral. It's like, we don't have a feeling about her affairs. Let's get into the affairs a little bit, because there are kind of two. There's Robert Lebrun, whose name I have a really hard time saying, and I'll say Araban, whose name I also have a hard time saying. (laughs) (laughs) They're very French. Yes. But with one of these men, she has really an emotional affair. And with the other, she has a sexual affair. Why do you think Kate Chopin divided those two relationships into two different men instead of giving Edna one man who did it all? (laughs) (laughs) The ideal, right? Um (laughs) There was actually a moment in the book, I wonder if I bookmarked it, where Edna thought something to the effect of, oh, I didn't think I could have these sexual feelings apart from love. And she realized that there's a sexual part of your being in your body that isn't necessarily attached to emotion. So it says, there was a dull pang of regret because it was not the kiss of love which had inflamed her, because it was not love which had held this cup of life to her lips. So it's almost this regret that Edna has that, oh, this was lust. This wasn't love. And I think it's interesting that there is a little pang of regret or maybe guilt even that Edna was feeling regretful that she was feeling these feelings, but it wasn't attached to emotion. It was purely attached to the physical. Yeah, I think you're right. And when she feels guilty about her affair with Aroban, she's feeling guilty about Robert not about her husband, because Robert is the man that she loves. Exactly. And when he returns, it seems like she would really love to start making out with him, but he <laughs> he says no. He says no, and it, it really makes me mad. Not that I like want to be rooting for all of these affairs in this book, but he says no because he's basically like, you belong to another man. And That is infuriating to Edna because she's saying, no, I am my own possession. I can choose who I want to be with. And she says, you know, if my husband were to come in here and say, here, Robert, take my wife, that wouldn't be good enough. I have to decide 
I get to decide. At the beginning of the version that I read, I was reading from the Modern Library Torch edition, and Carmen Maria Machado wrote the introduction, and she says um, that she had a far different experience reading this in high school versus as an adult, which I definitely relate to. Same. she, She says... When I read it now, every male character, the resentful petty husband, the philandering cad, the condescending doctor, the fickle man-child, induces a bowel-curdling rage. It occurs to the present-day me that a more just ending would have involved Edna drowning any of these men in the gulf. (laughs) Maybe all of them. And then going to take a well-deserved swim. (laughs) I think Carmen Maria Machado should write some awakening fanfic. Yes. I have a feeling it would be fantastic and also like very, very evocative of like this writing where it's very vivid imagery and lush. And yeah, I think that would be fascinating. Yeah. So we both had very different feelings reading it in high school. But overall, do you think that The Awakening is still relevant for modern readers? I do. And I don't know that it's relevant in the sense that I feel like, oh, everybody should read this because it's still such an important commentary on society. I don't know if I feel that strongly about it. It does still relate a lot to modern society, but you have to do a little bit of leaping to get there. One major thing that it it really made me think about was I, I do not have any children, but I am of an age where my friends are having their first kids and starting to sort of talk about motherhood. So I have a friend who all she wanted for like her birthday, Christmas anniversary present from her husband was one night away. She has, (laughs) Mm -hmm. she has a one-year-old son. She loves her husband and son dearly. She is a fabulous mom, but all she wanted was one night away And she thought it would be fun if she invited a couple of mom friends on the trip with her as like, hey, one night, literally one night in hotel, we can have a little mom's getaway. You know, you don't have to hang out with me in my hotel room. Like we don't have to do each other's (laughs) nails, but just, you know, a nice invite to just get away. And the response to her was, well, how can you leave your husband with your kid? How is he going to know how to do everything? Um, No. Oh my goodness. No, I can't go. I would feel so terrible if I left for one night. And she was like, come on, y'all. One night away. And he can handle the kid himself. Let's get real. Do you know what year it is? And (laughs) I, as I was reading this book, I just, I really kept thinking about that instance because that mom shaming behavior and that guilt for being separated from the home for literally one evening of solitude, I just really made me think of Edna and vice versa. Yeah, I completely agree. I love that connection. I I think when I read this book in high school, probably the constraints and morals around sexuality were probably what stood out to me as most prominent. Now, a lot of it was about the motherhood element. I do think that Edna's desire to remain her true self and to not lose herself in mothering is something that I see 
in a lot of modern women and something that I think about for myself for the future. And I think Chopin speaks to that really well. And just the fact that not all women are quote unquote mother women and that's okay. Yeah. And it's even okay. It's okay for them to be mothers and find their own way of mothering that suits them. And yeah, the mom shaming thing goes both ways too. I don't mean to say that the moms who don't want to spend the night away from their kid are wrong for that. It's just that the fact that there was guilt attached to my friend just wanting to spend one night alone really struck me. And then the gender roles, of course, of expecting that she's the only one who knows how to watch her child. That part, I will say, really kills me. Oh, totally. And that is so true of the Pontellier's relationship. Mr. Pontellier comes home and when his wife isn't giving him the attention that he wants, he says that one of the children has a fever and how could she not notice? And she's the one who has to get up. She was asleep, get out of bed, check on the child. Of course, he's fine. Her husband just wanted attention, but those were the roles. There's also the fact that he goes, I think he goes up to New York, right, for his business. And then it's not like he's taking the kids with him. There's zero expectation that he would do that. No, I think his mom takes them. So it's outsourced to another woman. And he goes to New York because his doctor buddy says, your wife is going a little bit crazy. Why don't you let her ride this out a little bit, get some distance. And when you come back, I'm sure she'll be all better. (laughs) (laughs) That doctor friend. Quite the guy. So given what we've talked about so far, who do you think should pick up the awakening or who would you hand this to as a recommendation? Well, I think a lot of modern readers would actually really enjoy The Awakening for a variety of reasons. I think one is that, and we'll get to this in our pairings, this trope of a woman who is experiencing self-discovery and things don't end well for her is a story that a lot of contemporary women writers are retelling or pushing back against or exploring further. And that all kind of stems from this idea in classic lit, or really just prevalence in classic lit, that for female characters, there were two ways to end a book. They either got married or they died. And we see books, very famous books that do that, like Madame Bovary or Anna Karenina. But this idea that there are only kind of two paths for a woman is, of course, ridiculous. And something that I think current writers and readers are interested in exploring. So if you enjoy reading contemporary feminist texts or just novels where women writers are exploring what it means to be a woman, this book will probably speak to you and inform you of how some of these tropes developed. I completely agree with that. And then I just think on top of that, the writing is great. I mean, it's it's beautiful and it's nice and short, but every sentence packs a punch. There's so much vivid imagery. And of course, it's, I mean, it's such an English teacher's dream of the symbolism and the <laughs> analysis that goes along with it. It's highly discussable. I actually think it would be a great book club pick. Oh, I think so too. That's a great point. Yeah, I 
was blown away by the writing. That's not something I remembered at all. But it's gorgeous. It's filled with imagery without being too flowery. A lot of the language feels extremely fresh. Like there are many, many sentences that you could pull out and plop into contemporary books and you would have no idea that they were written in the 19th century. I agree. However, there were a lot of problems that I noticed this time around that I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk about. 100%. Let's talk a little bit about that. So I think the kind of umbrella issue with this book is that class and race privilege go completely unacknowledged. Edna is a wealthy white woman. She never reflects on that. And our narrator never reflects on that. That makes sense given the place and time that the book was written, but I think it still makes for a fairly problematic read unless you're going into it looking for those things. Yes, unless you're reading with the lens of, okay, we're going to see how race and class functions in this text and you're paying close attention to it intentionally, this could be extremely problematic. So part of it is, as we talked about, the core of this novel is Edna is a wealthy woman who wants to make her own way and essentially wants to make her own money and work for herself. But all of that is so wrapped in her white, wealthy privilege. She has Black servants working for her. Those women are working. I don't, I doubt they're getting paid very much. They're certainly not free in the sense of what Edna desires for herself. And in 1899 in the South, they were free in very, very few ways. I mean, this was post-Civil War, but it was Reconstruction era. It was Jim Crow. And I would not expect Kate Chopin, whose family owned a plantation, who sympathized with the South during the Civil War. I would not expect her to explore these issues overtly or in in a way that would satisfy a modern reader, but it stood out to me now on this read as an adult, as someone who has been exploring these issues in literature and for myself compared to 17-year-old reading this and just being like, ah, that was the time. (laughs) Yeah, and I think teachers probably do a disservice to their students and to this book and to essential contemporary issues if they're reading this book with students and not talking about those things because the book is really steeped in white privilege. It's Edna's race and class privilege that allow her to basically outsource all labor so that she can have this emotional and sexual awakening. She could not do that without the help of these women of color. Absolutely. And she if she starts to even feel an itch to go off by herself and paint, she just has to hand her kids off to the nursemaid. There's also this really horrible scene where everybody is sitting around at a dinner party and they're just talking about these Mexican stereotypes that are horribly problematic. And I was really appalled reading it because I didn't remember it at all from high school. And I certainly don't remember our teacher ever talking about how that was a problem and I my teacher brain was just like firing off warning warning like if you read this with students you would have to talk about how problematic that scene is absolutely 
That scene made me incredibly uncomfortable. One of the characters goes and lives in Mexico for a short time, and both before his trip and after, there's a lot of problematic, flat-out racist commentary. It is important as modern readers to not just read this text and say, oh, well, that's the time and place and dismiss it as like, oh, well, she's writing from a time and place. Yes. It's important to note that historical time period. It's important to note race and class relations at that time period. But as modern readers, we can also take it a step further and say, this is really wrong. This is how it applies to today. This is how we need to treat this text today as modern readers. And so I'll say I think it's important to take that step further as modern readers and be more critical and more analytical of those things as we read a text like this, instead of just brushing it off as different time, different place. Absolutely. And I think that is how much of my own high school reading experience was, unfortunately. Thankfully, now after a lot of my own work, a lot of my own reading, being in grad school, I feel better equipped to apply some of these lenses to older texts. And it's really important because I think the classics are not untouchable. We should be able to poke at them and critique them while not necessarily canceling them. We can have this balance and this nuance where, as you said, we recognize the time and place that Kate Chopin was writing from, but we read it with our own contemporary lens. We should feel free and we should feel encouraged to critique what we see. We'll be back after a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Libro FM. Libro FM is the only audiobook company that allows listeners to purchase audiobooks directly from their favorite indie bookstores. Yes, I love being able to support my local favorite, Book Bar, with my many audiobook downloads. Which indie do you currently support? I support The Bookshelf in Thomasville, Georgia right now. I don't have a local bookstore, but I love that I can actually change which bookstore on Libro.fm I want to support so I can kind of just hop around the country and drop a little love everywhere. And I can also browse recommendations from indie booksellers across the country. That is one of my favorite features of Libro.fm. In fact, my most recent download, Stamped by Jason Reynolds and Ibram X. Kendi, was a recommendation from a little store called Main Point Books in Pennsylvania. I've never been there, but I love that the booksellers are still recommending books to me. What's your current listen? I'm listening to A Good Girl's Guide to Murder by Holly Jackson right now, which is really fun. It's a YA mystery novel, and it's sort of told like true crime podcast style. So I I actually think you might really enjoy it, Sarah. It's it's a fun one. I think your students for sure would enjoy it. Fun sounds good. I'm in the mood for something fun, so I'll have to try that out. Listeners, if you believe in supporting indie bookstores, now is the time to try Libro FM. Right now, you can get 3 audiobooks for 15.99 with the code novel pairings. That's three audiobooks for the price of one. Just enter code novel pairings or click on the Libro FM link in our show notes. All right, Chelsea, let's get into the books we want to pair with The Awakening. I don't know about you, but 
I struggled with this one a little bit because there are so many books that could be paired with The Awakening. So many books that tackle similar themes, definitely. I actually had a couple of these in mind for a while. So especially this first one that I want to talk about, it was the absolute first one that popped into my mind when I thought about The Awakening. Awesome. Tell us about it. So the first book is Educated by Tara Westover. And I absolutely loved this book. So Tara Westover grew up in rural Idaho, and she did not attend any formal schooling for most of her life. Her father was paranoid and was a survivalist. Her brother was abusive. And her desire for knowledge led Westover to teach herself and to really seek an escape from this life that she on the one hand, really loved the freedom of running around in rural Idaho and being sort of free to to wander in nature and to not go to school and to learn whatever she wanted to. But she really wanted that formal education experience. She had this thirst for knowledge. And her memoir really takes us on her education journey. There's sparse prose. She really tells it very very academically almost. She's a historian, so she tells us really like the history of her family and the history of her journey, but it's just so incredibly powerful. And it's definitely an example of an awakening. There's a very distinct awakening and separation from previous life to this life, finding an identity in oneself and leaving an oppressive environment and trying to establish an identity alone as a woman And as a grown woman in a world that was previously blocked off to Tara Westover. I love that pick. What an interesting pairing because it's a very different kind of awakening, but there are so many commonalities. My first pick is totally different. It's Everything I Never Told You by Celeste Ng. This is Celeste Ng's debut novel. It begins with the lines, Lydia is dead, but they don't know this yet. And what follows is a really compulsively readable mystery about the absolutely tragic death of 16-year-old Lydia, but that mystery is embedded in a family saga. And it's a saga about a, a family who has too many secrets. They keep too much from each other, as the title would suggest. It's set in 1977. And it examines a lot of different types of otherness and isolation, which is one reason I think it's a great pairing with the awakening. The types of isolation are both similar to and different from what Chopin explores in the awakening. So our family in this book, we have James Lee. He's Lydia's father. He's Chinese American. And Lydia's mother, Marilyn Lee, is white. And Lydia and her siblings are growing up as really the only students of color in their white suburb, and this sets the children apart. But Ng also explores different types of otherness throughout, including sexuality and class. And in one of the main subplots of the book, Marilyn, Lydia's mother, feels stifled by her role as a wife and as a mother, and she leaves her family to pursue a higher degree I won't spoil anything about that particular subplot because I love the way that the book unfolds, but what I really like about this is it explores a mother's awakening, how that awakening can impact an entire family, 
but how her stifled ambitions can also impact her family. You actually finished reading my next pick fairly recently on audiobook. I did, and I loved it so much. My next pick is Eloquent Rage by Brittany Cooper, and I partly picked this as an antidote to the distinctly white feminism of The Awakening, just because there's truly no intersectionality within the book, or at least it's not explored. We can sort of look at it with an intersectional lens, but you have to do that really intentionally with The Awakening. But Cooper's book is a story of Brittany Cooper's own self-discovery, her journey of finding herself and who she is in a world that casts her into the roles that she didn't choose for herself as a Black woman. These are essays with a very memoir feeling. So they're essays and they touch on sociocultural themes, but there's this distinct, incredible voice that Brittany Cooper has and her personal stories are intertwined with the cultural commentary. So I found it absolutely unputdownable. I just kept turning the pages. Her voice was so engaging to me. So it also addresses rage and anger, which is really missing from the dreamlike, sedated exploration of the awakening. Edna's very lethargic and very, she suffers from a lot of ennui. And so Cooper although she's having her black feminist awakening, there's this awakening element. It's, it's more fiery and it's more active. And I really like the juxtaposition of those two texts. I love that pick. They spoke to each other so well. And Brittany Cooper's ideas and her voice really impacted the way I, I viewed the awakening. And I'm grateful for that. I think she made my reading experience all the better. There's a specific essay in there, I believe it's called White Lady Tears, that Edna would do well to read, but I certainly needed to read it myself as well. <laughs> I agree. I think most white ladies could use it. What is your next pick? My next pick is Fleischman is in Trouble by Taffy Brodesser Ackner. So this is a 2019 release. It's a book I absolutely loved, but it's quite a polarizing book. People have very mixed opinions on this. The story kind of begins almost as a gender-swapped reimagining of The Awakening. It's a man who's not considered traditionally desirable. He's middle-aged. He has two children. He's short. That's a big part of the book. And he's going (laughs) through a divorce. He's experiencing this sexual awakening thanks to dating apps. Women who would have completely overlooked him are now all of a sudden interested in him. So for the first section of this book, it truly feels like that's what this book is going to be about, that it that the author is showing readers how an overworked but not ambitious kind of browbeaten man might experience a marriage where his wife is much more assertive and career-driven and successful. But then the author kind of pulls the rug out from under you and we get more of an examination of the ways in which modern women are supposed to have it all and do it all without sacrificing many of the same feminine traits praised in Chopin's time. So she's really looking at how women are supposed to be successful in their careers while still being these 
soft, loving wives and mothers. I loved this book. Maybe do some research to see if it's really for you. But I think this is a really fascinating one and one that made me think a lot about modern marital constraints in the way that Chopin was discussing marital constraints in the 19th century. I love a polarizing book. And I I actually think a lot of that came out with Educated too, where it was like people really loved it or really hated it. Fleischman is in trouble has been on my list for a while, but I haven't picked it up yet because there is that like, oh, really love it or really hate it polarizing factor. But I think those make for such great book club picks. Yes. My book club read Fleischman is in trouble and it was one of our best conversations. I highly recommend it for a book club pick. What's your final pairing, Chelsea? For my final pairing, this is maybe a little bit more loosely tied, but I thought back to Chopin's original title for her book, A Solitary Soul, and the ways in which solitude and nature really influence the awakening. And I thought of We Are Okay by Nina LaCour, which is a young adult novel. And the main character, Marin, moves from California to the East Coast for college after suffering a really traumatic loss. So this book is not so much about an awakening, it's really about grief. But nature and setting plays a really big role in the book, whether it's the sun, the ocean of California, or the blizzard on the East Coast. And just with the beautiful descriptions from the awakening and the imagery, I see that so much in LaCour's writing too. And it's also really heavy on the solitude and reflection theme. Marin is alone for most of the book. She's thinking about her past, her life, her future. And I think she really does have to be by herself in order to figure it all out without the influence of others. There's also this really dreamlike quality to the prose and It just also happens to be one of my favorite YA novels that I also think would be an excellent text to teach. Oh, you really sold that to me. I think I'm going to have to read that one soon. And the nature imagery and Edna's connection to the natural world was one of my favorite parts of The Awakening. So I'm really glad that you chose a book that highlighted that. I'm excited to hear your last pick. So my last pick is also more of a stretch. I think we were probably both feeling the fact that The Awakening is quite heavy, very dark, and a lot of our pairings are as well, but wanting to include something a little bit lighter. So my last pick is Evie Drake Starts Over by Linda Holmes. This is a romance novel, and it follows its title character, Evie Drake, shortly after the death of her husband. The details of Evie's marriage are parceled out over the course of the novel, but we do learn almost immediately that Evie was planning on leaving her husband on the very night that he died. She had her bags packed. She was getting ready to finally move out when she learned that he'd been in an accident. So as you can imagine, she has really complicated feelings about the loss of her husband. After his death, she's forced to start over, but no one in her life knows what her marriage was truly like. So everyone's very sympathetic, as they should be, but she's feeling a lot of guilt and discomfort with that. So, the romance element. To make a little extra income, Evie rents her spare bedroom 
to a professionally disgraced major league baseball pitcher. He has been in the big leagues, but he just can't pitch anymore. And so he's moving to small town Maine to seek solitude and quiet and maybe get his arm back. And you can probably guess where that relationship goes, but I still found many of the moments in this book really surprising. What I like about this book as paired with The Awakening is it's a much more empowering take on coming up against constraints in a marriage and making choices that are good for the female character and allow her to start over. This really is kind of a second chance romance, which is what Edna wished she had been able to have all along. So Chelsea, enough about books. Tell us, what is your pick of the week this week? Okay, Uh, hear me out. So we're talking a lot about gender roles and gender expectations and how that translates from the past to present day. And I think there is nowhere in society that makes this so evident as reality television, particularly dating shows. And the one that everyone's been watching right now is Love is Blind. Yes. And I, as I was reading The Awakening, I had just finished binge watching every single episode of this horribly edited, by the way. It is not a great show. (laughs) Poorly produced. Highly addictive. Yes. Poorly produced, poorly edited, but it's like, I don't know, it's like popcorn. You just can't stop. But... One of the people on the show, Lauren, she's asking her fiance if she could possibly keep her apartment because she's really hesitant to give up her independence. She really loves her own space. And so when Edna was purchasing this new little house for herself, I had (laughs) just finished watching Love is Blind. And I just kept thinking of that and thinking those gender roles and expectations are all over the place. They have changed and they have morphed. And it can be tempting to read books like The Awakening and say it was a different time, but it's not really that different compared to modern expectations of, you know, how women are supposed to be, what marriage even means, which roles you take in a marriage. And that's just talking about heterosexual relationships. Um, And that's what the focus of Love is Blind is. And it's also just really bingeable which I think The Awakening is too. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. The Awakening is like a great classic for people who don't read classics because you can read it so quickly. Nice and short and sweet and to the point. I love that pick of the week. And I think you really did a great job connecting those two things. And I wouldn't have thought of them. So that was really fun. I just couldn't get Lauren and her apartment out of my head. (laughs) Makes sense. What is your pick for this week? Well... I don't know that my pick could be any more different from yours, but (laughs) I went and saw this weekend, right after I finished reading The Awakening, actually, the French film Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which is, has been recently released in American theaters. I'm guessing by the time this episode airs, it might even be on streaming services, but It's this really gorgeous French film. It's set in the 1770s in Brittany in France. And it's about this young woman, a painter named Marianne. 
and she is hired to come and paint the portrait of another young woman named Heloise. Heloise has just left a convent. She has not had any desire to marry, but her parents are forcing her to. And Marianne needs to paint a portrait that can be sent to the man Eloise has been promised to. So he can look it over and decide if she's beautiful enough to be his wife. So in the day, Marianne serves as Eloise's companion and they go on these long walks on the beach with these gorgeous cliff scenes. And it very much reminded me of what I thought Grand Isle might look like and lots of windswept scenes. And then she memorizes Eloise's face and at night she paints her. And these two women fall in love. And it's this gorgeous love story set in a time and place when these two women knew they couldn't be together, but they celebrated every moment that they had. So they both are experiencing a sexual awakening. Marianne experiences an artistic awakening. And they really grow in both companionship and love and desire. I really think that Kate Chopin might love this movie. She might be a little bit scandalized. It's definitely rated R, so just keep that in mind. But it was kind of, it wasn't a utopian film in in any ways because of the constraints of the time period, but the movie is basically has no men in it, and it just celebrates these women and their love for each other, and it's just gorgeous. That sounds so good. And I think my brain could use a foreign film after watching Love is Blind in a matter of two days. It was a really good balance for my own weekend, I will say. (laughs) I, I watched a lot of Love is Blind and this film. And I think it was, you know, you need balance in your life. All right, listeners, for more classic lit enthusiasm and for podcast news, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Novel Pairings Pod on Instagram and at Novel Pairings on Twitter. We'd love to know whether you pick up The Awakening or any of the books that we mentioned today, so feel free to tag us and tell your friends about the Novel Pairings podcast by writing a review on Apple Podcasts or sharing our most recent episode on social media. We declare, after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How soon one tires of anything other than a book. We'll be back soon with an episode on The Remains of the Day by Kazuo Ishiguro.